Good morning. Can you hear me? Is that okay? Good. Good morning. Good morning. And we're just going to take that. If you're, I, I have a problem with self-injury when that is there. So I have to move it all every, because I just can't. It's a, it'll. Let's continue to worship as we come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you and exalt your holy name. As we gather, as we draw near, we can't help but stand in awe of you, a glorious one. We come together as this dwelling place of your spirit. And we come to you the only way possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we draw near to you, we know that we draw near to one who is holy. So we begin by acknowledging our own sin as we come into your presence. We all feel it. We all know it. And Father, we bring it to you. We pray those words of the psalmist, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Father, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We confess to you that it is against you and you only that we have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Father, we acknowledge, we recognize what is unavoidable. That none of us come here this morning having honored you as we ought. And Father, we praise you for that certainty that we have, for that assurance that we have that as we bring our sin, you forgive. First John one nine says, if we confess our sins, Father, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because your Son, Jesus Christ, is our advocate. And we thank you for that. Father, we come praying for this gospel message, this good news, that you are reconciling people to yourself. We pray that you would continue to send those who will proclaim that message in this country and in this world. We pray that you would uh, do what you promised, giving the nations to your Son that you will take your people 
from those places. Father, we pray as we come together for those who are sick, who are suffering, who are struggling. We pray that they would know your presence, that they would know your help. Those who are among us, those who are in our community, Father, we pray that you would show yourself a God who sees, who knows, and who comes. We praise you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in our scripture today, <clears throat> it's coming from 1 Peter <coughs> excuse me, chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 4 to 7. Real quick, I'll just give you sort of a big picture of what's happening in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter, he's got this people that he's writing to. And these people are like in the backwoods of the Roman Empire. He calls them exiles. These people are grieved by trials. And the way that he begins this thing is reminding them of what God has done in his mercy and in his power. That they've experienced this thing we call this new birth. He's made them alive. That's what they've experienced. He's brought them to life to what Peter calls a living hope. And he just bangs on that theme throughout this first chapter. Calling them to recognize what is ahead. This inheritance, this salvation, this anticipation of hearing this praise, glory, and honor that will be theirs at the appearance of Christ. He's talking to a people that are currently going through difficulty. He's talking to a people that he knows, they're like us, that they've never seen Jesus and they don't see Jesus in that moment. Yet, their belief, their trust in him is not in vain. And he does this great thing. He says, all of this stuff you've experienced, that stuff has been stuff that's been talked about for a really long time. The prophets, they were looking forward to this stuff that you are experiencing right now. Those prophets who were talking about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, they didn't see it. You're seeing it. It's yours. And he ends this section... Again, with this idea of new birth. Here's what you got from the new birth. Here's what you've experienced from the new birth. And here's how you got the new birth. You've been born again by the living and abiding word. And he says, that word that brought you to life is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. Interestingly enough, that's what he talks about when he talks about what those prophets were saying. You heard all that stuff from the prophets? 
in the good news that was preached to you. Begins with this word and ends with this word. And because they've experienced that, he calls them to something. He says, because of this gospel that was preached to you, this word that came to you, you got the taste that the Lord is good. Now, because you've tasted that the Lord is good, he says, keep coming back for more. This is that passage where he says, as newborn babies, right? Newborn infants, been born again, newborn infants, that's the connection. As newborn infants, he says, desire, long for spiritual milk. He's not talking about baby stuff. Well, he is talking about baby stuff, but not like, you know, like the, you know, the immature stuff. This is like he's saying, hey, look, you're a newborn babe, you need milk, this sustenance, this nourishment from that Lord Christ that you've tasted. You need more to grow up into this salvation that I'm telling you is fullness is coming. And after presenting all of that, calling them to desire this, we come to our passage. And if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, beginning of 7. Oh. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. That is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. Father, again, we thank you for this word, and we ask that you would do all that you intend to do by it in us this morning. By your spirit, you know where each of us are, where our hearts are, what we need. We ask that you would Focus in that you would use this word to kill us and raise us up. That you would use this word to comfort, to convict, and to conform us to the image of your Son. Amen. We all know what it is to experience trials. Suffering. I think I can say that pretty safely to a bunch of human beings in a room like this. You could all tell stories of change, unexpected, unwanted, or both, that you face 
both past and present. And we have to say this, that we as a people, us here, all of us are experiencing the trial together. We're experiencing a change. We enter a phase in the life of our church that isn't easy. It isn't easy for anybody. And that difficulty or that uneasiness can make gathering as a people difficult. That trial can make coming here hard. I think in Peter, we discover help as we gather, as we come here. Peter, I think, implicitly sort of provokes this sort of question. Who do you come here for? Who do you come here for? What he's going to show us is that we come here for Christ. Or to say it another way, we come to Christ in worship. As we gather together, as we draw near, we draw near to Him. That's the way Peter starts off, verse 4, as you come to Him. What's beautiful there is it is a present tense. It's not a, hey, since you've come to Him, I mean, that's happened, right? But this is as you come to him. And that's a nice little connection because we just sort of summarized for you. Two, three, he's just urged them, though coming to him is not the command. He's just given them a command. Desire, long for the spiritual milk. From who? From him, the Lord, that you've tasted is good. That's what kicks this off. And now he says, as you come to him. We come to him. We come to Christ in worship. And what he's going to show us, we could say a couple of things. We come to Christ in worship because of who he is and because of what he does. Because of who he is for us and what he does to us. We'll start with that, who he is for us. The one that you come to in worship is hope, strength, and security. That's who he is. We get that from verse 6, right? We'll start with verse 6 because that is this Old Testament pa- passage Peter's essentially gone, okay, I'm going to tell you all this stuff. And then he goes, oh, and that's where I'm getting that? Right here, Isaiah 28, 16. That's what he's quoting in verse 6. And that's the support for everything he's saying in verses 4 and 5. He says, 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. In Isaiah, that passage that he's quoting, swirling all around that passage is God's judgment on this people. And yet, right in the middle of it, God gives this hope. It doesn't look like it, but he's giving hope. A hope that he's going to accomplish his redemptive purposes. When he says he's going to lay a stone, the idea there is that he's going to create a new community. He's going to have for himself a faithful remnant that comes out of this. That he's going to bring a foretaste of the righteous reign that's coming through Messiah. All of that stuff, that's a big picture of how Isaiah uses this stone imagery. And when you think about this stone, don't think about little... Oh, here. Hang on. Hold on. I got one. Hang on. Oh. Oh. Okay. That's a stone. A stone. (laughs) He's not, you know, but Isaiah, he's not going, can you imagine? I am going to lay a stone. Just go, yay. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about this. This idea is this is a massive stone. A massive stone. It's a strength that connotes protection, refuge. He's saying... Hey, if you come to me, you're not going to be put to shame. That's refuge language. This cornerstone, that strength, in the sense of it providing stability. A foundation that's secure. That's what Peter is drawing out. As he quotes Isaiah 28. But look what he does. In the rest of that verse, when he says, Whoever believes in him. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Whoever believes in him. Stone, cornerstone, him. Peter in verse 4 says this is a living stone. He narrows the focus of the stone on the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The point that he's driving home here. To those who are going through fiery trials, salvation is found nowhere else. Your only sure hope is Messiah, Jesus He's the one who brings in God's righteous kingdom. 
Only through him is there any vindication. And in doing that, in Christ doing that, he creates a new community. He creates a new community as he is the faithful one that brings in this kingdom. We come to him in worship because we're not like any other organization bound together by philosophy, principle, or ideal. That is certainly not who we are. A person binds us together, one who is alive, one who has been raised never to die again. He is a living testimony to the certainty of God's redemptive work. And it will not fail. Christ is a living stone, a sure hope. We come to him in worship. We come to Christ in worship because he is the one that holds us up and holds us together. In him, we know that we are safe. And no grievous trial can inhibit, can stand as an obstacle to him bringing us securely to God. And because of all of this, he's this hope, he's this strength, this security. Because of all this, he's also highly valued. In verse 4, Peter says, of that living stone, he's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. He is loved by the Father. The Father's pleasure is in his Son. He's the one the Father sent in the flesh, and in the flesh, Christ has accomplished all that the Father sent him to do. He is precious. He is precious for the work that he has done. That's what Peter says about this one to whom we come in worship. And here's the question, right? This one who is our strength, our security, our hope. This one who is precious. Do you believe him? Do you? This one who is strength, security, hope, do you trust him? Well, it's not a true-false question necessarily. We come to Christ in worship. We come seeking him, desiring that nourishment from him because we believe he is our strength, 
security, hope, because we believe he is precious to us. And we come to Christ in worship, seeking him, longing for that nourishment from him, because we need him to help us trust that he is this strength, security, and hope. We need him to help us believe that he is as precious as he is. It's a both and. We come needy. And because we come needy, we're in a great place because we come to one who welcomes that need, who wants that, excuse me, that need. So we come to Christ because of who he is for us, and we come to Christ because of what he does to us. That's the second point. What does he do to us as we come to him in worship? Verse 5 says, you yourselves like living stones. Again, and he's getting that from what his quote was in Isaiah, you know, this idea that the promise of the Messiah coming has built into it the promise of a people. That stone is alive, and he shares that life with us. He's a living stone. We are like living stones. Because we're united to him. But he takes those stones, and maybe, maybe we can say now that we're stones. And he does something with those stones. He makes us a dwelling place. Verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are, present tense, are being built up. That's passive. Something is happening to us as we come to him in worship. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He takes these stones, one on top of another, places them. He creates a place. He creates a space. It's a space where... And hold on, get ready. It's a place where the Spirit of God actually dwells. I know that you were all, we are used to talking about the Spirit of God dwelling in us, you bet. But Scripture talks a lot about that reality as a corporate reality. He dwells in us, certainly as individuals. He dwells in us as a people. As we come together, that's what we're experiencing. He builds us up into that kind of people. We taste what it is to be the dwelling place of God. Or let's say it like this, right? We're right now experiencing what it is for heaven and earth to meet. 
this is, this is, this is not your, you know, club. Something cosmic is happening here. All right, let me read this for you. Hebrews 12, 18. Listen to this. Listen to this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He's talking about Sinai. The author of Hebrews says, you've not come there. Listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to listen to this. Listen to this. Right, right the, the the religion that you are a part of is weird. Okay, it is weird. Listen to this. I just want you to become self-conscious for a second about what you're actually saying, right, to the world when you gather together. You come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. This contrast. You've not come to an earthly mountain. You've come to heavenly realities. And he finishes this off in 25. And he says, you've not heard a voice from the earth. Right? Again, looking back at Sinai. You're hearing a voice from heaven. Whose voice do you think that is? Christ. He is speaking to us. That's what's happening here. That's what's going on as we gather together. So he makes us this dwelling place. He makes us servants. Verse 5 goes on. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, in, up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. He makes us servants. We're servants in this house. Now we can start to see how this spiritual house is taking on a shape. It's a temple. Right? You probably already got that. But it's becoming clearer. We... Again, that's a corporate collective reality. We are a priesthood. We're holy. That is, we're consecrated, set apart for this position as a priesthood. And what do we do? Verse 5, again, you're yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. Verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We come to Christ in worship to offer 
sacrifices. Have you stopped to consider how much temple worship still shapes what the church does? The New Testament. That temple worship. I mean, have you ever wondered why they don't talk a whole lot about, oh, what do we do in worship? Because they had had a lot of practice already. They didn't just leave it all behind. It shapes how they see themselves. It shapes what they see themselves doing because of what Christ is doing in them in worship. We offer these spiritual sacrifices. And that's not invisible sacrifices. Don't take it like that. I'll show you what I mean by that. But I'm just going to give you sort of a, a, a few of these things. What are these spiritual sacrifices? Prayer. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 8. Here we get to see sort of kind of what goes on in heaven. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. That's not just because John is doing something sort of creepy in Revelation with that stuff. That was already the sense of what was happening in temple worship. At the very least, you hear what we do is prayer, given sacrificial language. We make an offering to God. And that prayer may be by praise or thanksgiving. That prayer will be by petition right? and supplication to God for us, for the church, and as a priesthood, for the world. Here's another one. Right? The Word, ministry of the Word. That goes on here. In fact, this sort of maybe gets at when we go, okay, well, how is he building us up into this spiritual house? Okay, I think this has a major part to do with this. And you may have never thought about it like this, but listen, listen to this. this is, we're talking about consecration here. What God does with this word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 to 13 it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And listen to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
this two-edged sword? What is this? Well, it lands in a book, right? right in the middle of which you've got all kinds of temple language. This illusion of that priest's knife cutting us, chopping us up, not leaving us in pieces, but arranging us to be burnt up by the Spirit's work, consecrated to Him. Jeff Myers, another comments on this, he says, the fiery spirit will use the word during this part of the service to chop us up and wash us and transform us into a holy people prepared to meet our holy God. That's a part of what goes on here. Part of what this, our high priest is doing in us. Another Thanks, a spiritual sacrifice, thanksgiving, and praise. Hebrews 13 again says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Psalm 69, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And verse 31 says, This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns or hooves. Our singing is painted in sacrificial language. Our offerings. How about this? Our offerings are another one. Like offerings, like, you know, giving Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Lastly, this meal that we share. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This allusion to Passover and communion You know what this sort of Lord's Supper sort of corresponds to in the Old Testament? A peace offering. You know, that's the only one that both the priest and the people get to eat. Communion with their God. This is, again, not that Christ is sacrificed when we eat, but we have this sort of memorial in this sense that we are reminding God of all that Christ has done and that He promised 
to give us all that Christ has secured for us. But note this about these sacrifices. They don't stand on their own. I mean, in the same way that we come to Christ in worship because of who he is for us, we come to Christ for worship in what he does in building us up as this spiritual house, making us a priesthood so that we can offer sacrifices. This only makes any sense because of the last thing that Peter says. Verse 5. He says, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of our sacrifices and offerings are pleasing to the Father because of Christ. It's offered through Him, meaning that they are received by the Father because of the sufficiency of His work. Christ is the central focus of our worship. He's the one that we come to worship. He's the one that we come to in worship through and through. All and all. When we come to Him in worship, we come to Him as our hope our strength, and our security. We come the one that makes us a place of worship and a people of worship, and we come to one that we can trust. We come trusting in all that he's done for us. We come trusting in the Father's faithfulness to accept it, all of it, through him. Well, as we as we do this thing, as we come to him in worship, I want to invite you now, go ahead and begin coming up to receive uh, the Lord's Supper. What we'll do, as we did last week, you'll come up, you'll receive it, go back to your seats, and then we'll all take it together. Y'all can come on down. Mm -hmm.